In a world filled with topics often left untouched, one man isn't afraid to venture into the intellectual abyss. Welcome to Forbidden Conversations, and I'm your host, Harry Weatherall. Greetings, seekers of the obscure and the thought-provoking. You've turned into another episode of Forbidden Conversations. We don't just dip our toes into the murky waters of deep topics. We plunge head first. Over here on this podcast, we are forever in the pursuit of truth, a microphone in one hand and a compass in the other, which today leads us through the jungles of religion, AI, and Chinese politics, while also taking an odd detour through Bohan's melodic preferences. This is an episode you certainly don't want to miss. But first, a word from our sponsors. You see, the world isn't just about ideas and profound discussions. It's also about good food at great prices. And here's where our sponsor for today's episode comes in. A little something I like to call Dinerly. Now, this isn't your typical restaurant deal, no. Dinerly is an innovative platform that's shaking up the dining scene in Delver. And quite frankly, folks, it is brilliant. It's supply, demand, just simple economics. Dinerly gets it. They offer you 50% off your meal when you book during off-peak hours. It's when restaurants have extra capacity and they're willing to save the pass on the savings to you. Now, cost of living, inflation, it's all rising. I find Dinerly is really helping people save. It's in the Denver area. And you know what? It's launching in July 2023. So get excited about that. You know what I like to say? If you're not at the table, you're on the menu. So, you know, why not be at the table, enjoy some great food and save some of that hard-earned money? We can celebrate the virtues of free market capitalism and some delicious food. And you can do all that by checking it out at dinerly.com. Discover delicious, not just a slogan, a lifestyle. Now, fasten your mental seatbelts as we gear up to venture into the heart of today's forbidden conversation. Also, please note that we had some technical issues on this podcast. So if it feels like we just jumped straight into things, we did. And now introducing Bo and Lou. Go for it. Yeah, you were in the middle of telling, I believe, quite a riveting story about... Uh, I actually, I think I heard most of it, right? We got to the point where like... Yeah. You know, you, you submitted the blank paper and you thought you were going to be political, dissident, yeah. and then like, oh, actually, very impressed. And you guys thought a bit about it. Okay, and then what happened afterwards? So, so I, I have this experience. I, I've done my political thing. We start having these like after, yeah, after class chats, me and my other friend, Nick Fabry, fellow podcaster. Um, and then we started watch. There was, so there's three things. It was, the, was that. There was the in class. We used to watch The Matrix. And he would then pause it at certain points and explain the story of the Matrix through like a biblical lens, which I found real sort of like, oh, no way. Oh, yeah. how, how old were you? What grade was this? 12 or 13. That's a pretty sick priest to have. Or he would yeah. be talking. He was, he was a cool one. Yeah. Wow. Um, but and actually cool. Sorry, I was going to make some. Uh, he didn't even try to like touch you inappropriately. No, no, wow. no. And, really? Really I, I was quite an early developer, though, um, so maybe I maybe that saved me. Um, but no, I don't think I don't think he was. Although years later, uh, it was found one of the te- one of uh, the teachers who was a good friend with Nick, who, who was also my fellow political dissident. He this teacher claimed that he left because there was a story of a teacher who was abusive. But the school did not do anything about it, and he resigned in disgust. But did not say the name of the person. So, someone, someone's um, in the. It's like 
uh, it's like a Cluedo game. And we don't know if it was him or not. And it's unfair to judge. Um, but yeah, so I had the matrix. I had the, that, and then I had this experience when I was praying once forced prayer, um, on assembly Monday morning. And I got hooked onto, oh, I, I ended up on the hotline. You know, I felt like I was on the Dave Ramsey show and I got through, like I'm there and I'm, praying and all of a sudden it's the electricity it's the bumps it's the full uh, energy causing to your body and i was like this is it i've been i've been summoned six weeks after i put the blank piece of paper in front of father tim's uh nose i was being dunked by father tim into the baptismal bowl signed up of your own accord right all accord. I told, asked my parents. I'm like, we religious. We're like, no. I was like, we don't believe in any of this stuff. Um, and oh, her whole thing was like, it's stories. People didn't know the story that, and this is the belief that I grew up with was, uh, in the past, we didn't understand a lot of things, and that's why people people don't like not knowing things. So he just created stories to explain it. And the example she'd always use was like Ra using his chariot to bring the sun over. And now we don't, now we know it's something else. So we don't believe it's a do with the chariot. And in the future, we'll believe things like that. And it probably leads into your like 90s, early 2000s. All the things, all the mysteries of the universe was more and more, they were being explained more and more frequently for the use of science. Yeah. Um, and that was a pretty strong argument for me. And then I was sort of like nominally Christian. I never got, I never, like I tried to chase the dragon a little bit after that and never really got it. Um, and then the spell was broken when I was in theater class and we were learning all about, um, Greek theater and all about how the representations of the gods and stuff. And it came to my mind that throughout history, there's been so many of these beliefs and we've all discarded them over time. So what makes me think that this one's the right one? And for some reason, I, it was like a waking up experience, you know, Sam Harris would be proud. Um, and so then I went through my period of like R slash atheism, but, but it wasn't like transgressive at all because I lived in such a like secular country. Um, and then I watched Bill Maher's religious and converted to agnosticism, uh, based and as, as he says, and now what I used to say was I preach from the gospel of, I don't know. And anyone who thinks that they do know, like what happens in the afterlife is like, like, they don't. Um, because, and, that, and that's when I, that's when I sort of became very much imbued with the skepticism of the fantastical elements of particularly organized religion. And now after this Arthur Brooks stuff, I've emerged at the religious, not spiritual space. So, uh, an interesting, an interesting so, time to be alive. Yeah, you had, so that, you know, obviously, you know, your religious experience where your spiritual uh, experience was not like on the order of you seeing an apparition of the Virgin Mary, but you know, I would say no. that was, was quite visceral, but still that was Powerful. not enough to sustain a faith for a lifetime. You know, like, or like in retrospect, when you look back upon it, you like, you think of like secular explanations that could potentially explain it. I guess there's probably a lot of physiological explanations that could work. Yeah. And, and I, that's why I think that um, with Sam Harris's thing, where he talks about, um, he's like, there's obviously, we have physiological um, and psychological responses to spirituality. Um, I'm not too sure if you've ever used like psilocybin or magic mushrooms, ayahuasca. There's a huge number of people who have taken psychedelics and had spiritual experiences. Yes. Um, 
And, you know, oh, what's the one? Is, oh, I ask it. That's the one that they go out into the, uh, that's the popular one in South America. Yeah, um, it comes from like in the Amazon, some, something like that. Yeah. Or like licking the toad. Um, oh, yeah, the and, yeah. Yeah. And he was a big, and his whole thing is like, you can lick the toad and believe that you now have a spiritual um, belief system and that's true or like people who meditate they feel like it's a certain sense of enlightenment etc etc it's like we can achieve all those experiences which could be positive certainly enjoyable but we don't need to wrap it up or in all the um you know psalm 55 sort of thing so that was a pretty persuasive argument to me uh but yeah 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 Yeah, i mean on the agnostic part i i would say that's quite strongly what i identify with right and it's a level of like um i guess you know you talked about the dunning dunning kruger effect right and i feel like the more i learn the less i feel like i know and the more i learn i think the less i could possibly defend a position of of certainty on either side mm. of the god is definitely this way or god is definitely you know does not exist spectrum and i think atheism i uh, growing up you know i heard you know i grew up in a religious community i heard a lot of people yeah. say Atheism is basically your religion, and that believing yeah. in atheism requires as much faith as believing in religion. God, and I, I never understood until God, later I realized, okay, that's really true. Like, atheism really is religion. It's just as unfalsifiable and unprovable as, as Orthodox religion is. Yeah. Um, and I think agnosticism, which is often seen as the, the weak pussy choice, is honestly the most defensible, which is just how things are in the world. There's always a tension between uh, how rigorous something is and how certain something is, I think. Yeah. Um, I would say that's where I fall a lot. Uh, personally, I think I do have intuitions or inclinations that there is some higher power out there, but uh, maybe, you know, not to sound overly deist, but I don't know anything about this power and I have no idea if it's anthropomorphized. I don't have any, no idea if it cares about us or is involving you. So there's probably something out there, but I think any of the world's existing religions, I don't think are actually describing this God. I, I don't believe that the real, the Christian or the Muslim, the uh, maybe the Hindu view about these things. I, I think those 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 things very much seem human created for me. I don't think they they're necessarily divine, or maybe they're an interpretation. Very human, aren't they? Yeah. I um, used to have these two guys I used to live with. Um, these two Nepalese guys when I was living in Germany, and they used to explain like Hinduism to me, and I quite enjoy, I quite enjoyed hearing their stories because their gods are very human. Um, they you know they they have like they're like one dude's blind, and like a couple guys are like limp. What well, you know. One of the gods is like a bit dim-witted and always gets like, you know, they, they're very human rather than like omnius and omnipresent. That, that is true, but that is true yeah. of like, you know, the the polytheistic pantheons, like the Greek yes. Romans. That that uh, little bug in the system was fixed with monotheism where the god became a lot less human. And I, I, actually, I would say, yeah. to my understanding, the Jewish god actually did not start off perfect. Now, and then, like, most Christians have a conception of God as a perfect being, omnipotent, omniscient, you know, immaculate in a lot of ways. Yeah. I was actually not ordering the case, but later with the Greek Hellenistic influences and the Greeks, you know, they were obsessed with perfection and all these kinds yeah. of things. Um, it became more that way. So now I think we have a conception of the monotheistic deity as this, yeah, not not very, not at, like the Greek gods at all, where this monotheistic deity does not like have petty grudges, does not get jealous. In the, in the way the humans would. But yes, uh, to, to your point, like if you look at a lot of the, the Hindu gods, the Greek gods, the Roman gods, the Egyptian gods, they were basically like human stories with all the human fallibility except yeah. they had superpowers. You know? yeah, yeah, it's like kind of a Marvel movie. Um, but they, they, they cheat on each other a lot more. Um, a little less Puritan. 
Uh, you talked before about a higher power and slight movement. We are witnessing the growth of the higher power in real time. Sure. Artificial intelligence. I mean, my experience with it has been that a year, pretty much a year ago, I wrote a machine learning algorithm, which I taught myself through a combination of YouTube videos to run over a, like a large data set from the bank I was working at. And I remember presenting to people and be like, I'm using machine learning and AI to like detect people. And people thought I was a genius. But what I felt was so unbelievably unsatisfied. I'm like, this is it? I thought it'd be like iRobot. But all of a sudden, ChatGPT is changing the world in real time. You have, and congratulations, just signed on with an AI startup. Um, I'd love to sort of hear your thoughts on it because everyone's got an opinion on it, but I feel that um, these opinions are, most people aren't experts, most people don't understand what's going on, um, but you're one of the few people in the world who do. So tell me what you've seen from someone who's yeah. on the, uh, a few on the edge. I think, I think your point about me being one of the few people in the world who do understand is not true. Many people... First of all, I mean, we're, uh, that's positing there is this like objective truth to understand. I, I think like, like you said, including within the experts, there's a huge range of opinions. You know, there's no consensus yeah. in a lot of these questions. And I would say like, I probably know more than the average person in the world and maybe even the average person in tech because I specifically yeah. work with large English models. Um, but still, again, take my opinion with a grain of salt. Um, you know, I'm not within the core research team at OpenAI or, you know, Anthropic necessarily. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I agree with you on, I think what you, the sentiment you describe is basically the sentiment of most of the world and why right now, despite, you know, people's worries about maybe a recession and like a slowdown and, and like tech investing, you know, AI is booming. This is like the only vertical where VC is still pouring money. It's like probably yeah. powering a lot why the big tech stocks were rallying this last couple of weeks, you know, mm. uh, because, and, and also it's taken the world uh, more quickly and in a more pervasive way than I think probably any technology definitely in my lifetime I can remember. And like maybe last time was dot-com dot boom, according to the VCs. Yeah. Like this is bigger than crypto, right? Because crypto took, oh, yeah. crypto took a while to understand. Eventually, you know, then the FOMO from the financial upside got more people into it. But like people could just kill it. My mom took a while to understand Bitcoin. She was like, and you know, think off her wisdom at after some research on my mom's part she was like I, this is bullshit it's like yep yeah you see you saw through it but the ai thing is like it's like so visceral and everyone immediately gets it because it's like sentience is what it feels like and so i, I was living in new york when i think i kind of the chat gpt moment happened i was not working yeah. AI. and when this happened i decided i had to move back to sf where i used to live where i yeah. didn't want to be socially i should move to new york because i thought you know, um, there'd be more people working like philosophy, religion, uh, politics which versus in Silicon Valley, which is all purely like tech investing. Yeah. So I wanted to stay in New York, but I gave that up to move back to San Francisco because I had to be a ground zero of the AI boom because I was like, this is going to change the world. This is a level of cognition that we haven't seen computers be able to come up with. Yeah. It's going to automate a bunch of jobs away. So how's the government going to respond? And for the first time, it's automating these like white collar upper class jobs away, which uh, has been a kind of creative disruption never seen before because historically always goes for the color working class. So I believe all these things, right? I very much, very much drink the Kool-Aid. And now I think after working, I think in large English model companies for, uh, you know, around half a year now, which isn't that long, but actually in the LLM space is quite long. You're a veteran, yeah. 
Yeah, like I actually at this point, I, I'm one of the few people I've met who can say I've worked at like two like large English model companies. Yeah. Um, I think I very much sobered up about the capabilities, right? I think like, okay. and I, I feel that sentiment in the Valley big. There's a lot of this AI hype, a lot of parties are still happening. But first of all, a lot of people were thinking this could be their key to a billion dollars. They were going to like make easy money there or, or they were going to, this is their chance to start a generation defining startup. And they're realizing that's not necessarily true. Get a lot of these events. There's a lot of like interesting little side projects, hackathon demos. They're not turning into um, commercially viable, scalable companies. In terms of technology, I think the threats of AGI, you know, there's, there's camps here that really are into that. I think a lot of people who work on safety at some of the AI labs, like OpenAI, Google, Anthropic, um, Conjecture, they probably are a big, big, um, much more um, kind of bought into the short AGI timeline vision that, you know, it, AGI will happen. It's going to happen in like the foreseeable. Just define AGI for our audience. Um, so our AGI audience. is artificial yeah. general intelligence. That's that's okay. what acronym stands for. In terms of definition, that's also not agreed upon, right? That's part of the difficulty of knowing uh, people just debating whether we'll ever get there is because there's no consensus definition about what AGI means. Some people say, oh, it's super intelligence. But what does that actually mean, right? How do you define this thing being super intelligent? Um, you know, uh, things like that. But yeah, so artificial general general intelligence is kind of like the AI where I, I think I personally think of it as, yeah, some kind of super intelligence where it's not like we have to teach it specifically to do anything. It can learn everything we can and more, you know, mm. it, can, it can actually like improve on itself. It's creative. It will just like way overtake us thing kind of thing. Um, so, I, but I think like after working that you start to view these things in a much more material lens where like people have been seeing the people who are not doomsdayers, often use arguments that this thing is just a bunch of linear algebra. It's just a bunch of equations. There's no way this thing can actually take down humanity because it's just not that magical. We know how the math works, even though it's still considered a black box because there's enough of this. Yeah. We, we know kind of the building blocks of how the math works, but when it happens at the scale, we actually don't know exactly what's happening in the yeah. models. Um, but I think I'm, I'm a bit more on that point where like both from a business perspective, sobering up about like, you know, there's a reason why a lot of companies actually can't get LLM value because these models are not totally deterministic. They're not totally reliable. They make up shit. They lie, which technically they're called hallucinations. So there's a lot of limitations that with the current paradigm, we actually don't know how to solve. We actually don't know how to stop making these models lie. You can reduce it, but you can't actually fully get rid of them. And how um, it doesn't, it's not clear. I, I, you know, Jan LeCun, who is, you know, one of the AI godfathers, recently came out saying he thinks this whole research path of large language models is kind of going to get humans to a local mac, local maxima. That, like, we're all, like, you know, really, like, circle jerking about, like, ChatGPT, but it's actually going to prevent us from researching the true paths that actually get us to AGI, that this is not the right path to AGI. Um, and I, I think I kind of agree with that. I'm not, some people in Silicon Valley think that, as these models scale, right, the models get bigger and they seem to get smarter and that these yeah. scaling laws are still holding true, that if we just dump more compute and train models with larger parameter sizes, we will actually, you know, get more intelligence. I, I'm a little bit skeptical about that. I think we might need like a fundamentally different approach. Okay. So just so I can understand you, is it just what you're saying is that there's um, diminishing returns? Like I've got ChatGPT Pro. Um, I The difference between 3.5 and 4 is noticeable it is um it is it's unbelievable i've been like i've been a it has changed my life i've been able to build essentially a entire website right with no technical knowledge with my co-founder joe who is a chat which is an ai machine but i just tell him what to do and he's like you need to do xyz in this order and it allows me 
to do something that I wouldn't have been able to do previously, or I would have been able to do previously, but it would have taken me a lot longer. Um, so when people talk about, um, so what you're trying to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that ChatGPT5 is going to be like 10% better, and then ChatGPT6 will be like 5% better. And we will just hit this point where it's... I think it's... Um, we've run, we're, we're, we're closer than we thought to like the potential. Yeah, I mean, I think people are excited because this is the closest we've had something that looks... Uh, to be like a general artificial intelligence or general sentience. Um, yeah. What I what I'm saying I think is more that. I mean, these are kind of philosophical questions, and they're difficult because yes. we also don't have a consensus definition about consciousness or you know what what, what sentience is. But what I think is like, ChatGPT is also the models are called GPT. So like GPT five, GPT six, if they're working on it, uh, are going to get better. Uh, maybe. Yeah. Maybe even more than like 10, 5%, maybe even multiples X, but it's still like running ex- running on a wrong path. It's like accelerating us to like not AGI. I think it's just like consciousness is this like qualitative difference. Like we're, we're getting better in terms of degree, but I think the qualitative jump is not something that can just be done through just like uh, improvements, even if it's multiple X improvements. Um, it's, it's my personal view. I think like to get to that level of consciousness is probably just a different paradigm that we're just like racing the wrong race here. And you are going to get better at this race. And I'm not saying like there will be some business value, but I think um, I I don't think this is the actually like, you know, maybe to clarify your question, what are you asking me? Right. Like, are you asking me whether I think we're going to get to AGI or whether this technology is going to like disrupt the world economy? You know, I I think this is the analogy that I think of. And I I know I've noted your question, so I'll come back to it. Is that is this where humankind is on at the moment? You know, I think it was like 2007, the iPhone comes out, 2006, and everyone's like, oh, my God, this is this massive thing. Uh, it's just going to get better and better and better. And the iPhone, what, 13, 16? The iPhone, is it? the iPhone 10 is a lot better than the OG iPhone. But each progressive iPhone generation has a slightly better camera, slightly, right, right, right. More, slightly better processor, <laughs> slightly longer battery. Whereas but the... 90% of the chains of the iPhone affected probably was in the first one. And maybe that's what we people are thinking and they're overestimating. They're like, oh, shit, this thing's massive and it's only just started. It's not like, oh, we've just invented the first computer. Oh, my God. You know, we've just every day the Internet becomes more and more useful. It's becoming more useful as time goes on and possibly more impactful than, you know, when Charles Babbage made it like a simple computer. Um, yeah. But, yeah. I think like, yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think the other analogy I look at is like, um, you know, let's say in the future we want to do like interstellar travel. Um, I'm just, no, I'm not the biggest like astrophysics expert. I read some sci-fi, but my understanding is like, you know, we might need some kind of like wormhole technology, warp technology yeah. right? that we're like, Right now, what we're doing is like maybe we're just keep making faster, faster spaceships. They keep getting faster and faster yeah. and faster. But it's just fundamentally never get out, get us there. We just need like this like paradigm shifting technology of being able to manipulate like fabric of space time to actually jump these huge distances in space. Like just getting our engines faster, faster is just never going to get us to uh, yeah. what we need to get um, where we need to go. So I think that's that's kind of how I'm thinking about it right now. And. So I think these are very theoretical questions, but even a bit more concretely, right? A lot of people worried this is going to automate a lot of jobs away. People are like, oh, like what is the point of me even studying anything? Or like, you know, society is going to collapse, you know, things like that. I'm also even, even those that are get a bit more concrete problems, I'm not as 
confidence going to be that big transformation. Um, I think, you know, when I moved from New York to San Francisco, the startup I joined ostensibly, it was founded by ex-OpenAI and ex-Google DeepMind researchers, you know, mm. like people at Core Technology. I mean, one of the guys worked on GBD4 and they initially, their goal was they were going to automate all knowledge of work away and they were going to create the preconditions for luxury communism. You know, I, I, so I like that. I like a startup that has some like political agenda, mm. you know. Yeah. Um, and then you start working on it and you realize, and, and you got like, we were a small fry, but you got like companies that are raised like, you know, $300 million, like a debt, you know, they're trying to do that too. And they're really hitting like hitting a lot of walls and not really getting anywhere, even in terms of automating a lot of jobs that we thought um, were, were going to be at risk very soon. And as some have gone like copywriters, I think are, have been at some risk and lawyers, some of the yeah. low level lawyer work, um, like Harvey yeah. AI is doing it. But obviously, like, you know, lawyer investment banking, the high level, it's all human relationships. And that thing's nearly impossible to automate, right? So, like, the Alan Dershowitz will still have a job tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, the, the schmoozing is actually the core of the job, you know, at the high level. Yeah. Um, but I actually think even in terms of the societal disruption, um, it's not going to be as much as people think. We're not as soon. Um, and I think I have friends in tech who are like, I, my goal now is to save us, save up as much money as I can because I'm not going to have a job in five years. And I, I think that's definitely over, overblown. Um, I think things are going to yeah. change. Uh, AI is going to be a tool, but people are realizing large language models right now. And I, I talked to a guy at OpenAI, uh, Ted Sanders. He's actually, um, he researches a lot of like the real life applications of OA, OpenAI, like business applications. He's the one who like uh, does a lot of the guides for companies on how to actually commercialize this. And so when you talk to him, I would say he has a much more sober view versus the safety researchers in the company. Those are the people who are more philosophical and like more deep yeah. there. Uh, and talking to Ted, he was like, yeah, he's, he, he, he sees all the difficulties. Companies trying to wrangle business value out of these things, even with GPT-4, because they're not 100% reliable. They're not, they can't, you can, you can use them to make drafts of things. You can use them to make things that humans can check over. That's where you, what they're good at. They're good at working on things that are resilient, that have high fault tolerance, that you don't even be fully sure. direct. But, you know, a lot of business applications, if you want them to make a decision to make a final call, they have to be like, actually, like, you know, close to 100% correct. And they're just like, fundamentally, this whole... Currently, they just like uh, how the design just can't get to that hundred percent correctness. Uh, he actually published this paper recently. If if the listeners want to look at um, on archive, you can find it, which is like you know where you find papers. Um, he and his co-author have a claim that they think there's a less than one percent chance uh, there will be transformative AI in the next twenty five years, is what I believe, right? And I think I, that was interesting to you coming from someone transformative defined as. Uh, I don't know his exact definition, but I think he has a certain few certain ways to define like, you know, what is transformative. But he's saying there's a less than 1% chance in the next 25 years, which I would say is a minority opinion among like the open AI people. But, you know, he is someone yeah. from open AI who believes it. Yeah. So I went through a period of time in 20, when, when I, another sort of a secular religion I joined um, back in 2019 was the Yang Gang. Read both his books, Andrew Yang, and was very influenced by his ideas um, I think he's wrong and I think I know why he's wrong. Um, I think, uh, but I think the, uh, and I think the pandemic proved it for those who are unfamiliar with this, Andrew Yang, long shot democratic candidate for president. His whole thing was bringing UBI, um, into the mainstream. But one of the things he talks about is that when I, my favorite heuristic to use when thinking about the world is I think at the margin and the idea that all of a sudden like law will just disappear overnight by AI is entirely wrong. But what will change is, um, it, you know, instead of having like 
50 people in your analyst class or your associate class, you can just do it to 40 because they don't have to spend so much time reading, they can just get summaries. Um, so it shrinks. I mean, we technically still have blacksmiths that exist, um, but now they're just making ceremonial stuff. I mean, this is quite relevant to you. You've been starting to use AI-driven cars around San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, they've actually become a normal part of my life. Andrew Yang talks about how the number one most common job for high school educated males in every single state in the United States, apart from maybe Hawaii, is truck driver. And you must see, having driven around San Fran, that this is getting, that must be pretty close to, that must be in the end, end game now. Yeah. Um, so, you and know, the question are- is, like, with, with that in mind, like, there's going to be a gov. Is there going to be a government solution, or is it a market solution, or is it going to be a hybrid yeah. solution? That, so that's a good question. Um, so the cars I've been taking were like cruise vehicles, right? Which are consumer uh, AVs, uh, which is actually, to your point, the much harder problem to solve, right? You got to like take these people down like busy roads in the middle of the city, you know, like yeah. much harder conditions. Autonomous vehicle, autonomous trucking is the probably much more viable business case for AV technology and probably closer yeah. because you have much of these much more predictable closed systems on the highways and you don't have to get to the last mile. You can go do like this spoke to spoke hub to hub system, right? Um, I don't know exactly. Less, less, pre- less precious cargo as well. Well, I, I don't know how much I'm worth necessarily. I, they could be shipping Apple with Vision Pros in the back of the trunk. That could be a little <laughs> yeah, light. Um, but um, I, I mean, people, so people have been like thinking, that that would come very soon, and I think the promise yeah. is there. I don't know exactly when they're going to com- commercialize. I actually have a really good friend from Yale, uh, run this company I angel invest in, where you know they're actually one of the few companies I think is actually for profit and does social good. They're training people in prisons to come out to be truck drivers, which is a has a short supply shortage right now. People be truck drivers, yeah. so partially drove supply chain, uh, a lot of supply chain issues, and it's one of the highest paying jobs. Uh, that you can get without a college degree. So, you know, he's he's giving these people a second chance to get a like a you know a good job in society and not get into recidivism. Uh, but he yeah. he, he worries about it, a bit, but like, but not very. And and they make government contracts. He takes the U.S. government's fifty billion dollars allocated re-education and uses more efficiently. So I, I thank him for using my taxpayer money better. Um, he doesn't make money off the 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 truck driving schools nor the students. Um, but you know, I asked him about this. Like, yeah, your whole business model is training these people for this. Uh, truck driving job, are you worried that like, you know, AVs are just going to like, you know, make your whole business model obsolete and these students you're training aren't going to have a job? And he says like, obviously that's theoretically a possibility, but based on what he's saying, I think it's just not that soon. Um, I think there's still, I think one day it could happen, uh, but, uh, and, and it's good for a lot of people like Andrew to be thinking about the long run. It, it's fair that we should start calling these things out in the long run, um, but um, I think there's still value in going truck driving now. It's like, it's like, I, I, yeah, I think a lot of these changes, um, not, not to just like, you know, get embarrassed 20 years later when I listen to the podcast, but I, I think there's slow, some of these things with the, this transformative technology are slower than people expect. Um, you know? Yeah. I think that's true as well. I, I have a big believer that there's a real tendency to fall into this, um, Luddite mentality and be like, technology is going to ruin everything. But I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was the neoliberal page that I follow because I'm, one of them um, is that in the like 1975 like book of occupations every single occupation that is on that list still exists today apart from one which is elevator assistant 
Hmm. That job is no longer exists. What's happened is that a lot of people have like changed jobs or the way they do it looks very different. Um, for example, financial trading, it's no longer in the pit with people shouting out numbers. It's all done by computers, but still probably more people involved in that. Um, people talk about how like classic one there, everyone loves to complain about how manufacturing has disappeared in the United States, despite the fact that there's three times more manufacturing than in the US than there was in 1980. The difference is uh, people who now work in manufacturing aren't walking around in like the overalls, swinging a wrench. They're walking around in a lab coat with an iPad. Um, when you see these like Tesla's model, like factories working, they're very different to what uh, Henry right. Ford's Model 3 was like. So, but the fact is unemployment stayed. Um, unemployment is still very low. Um, and uh, thank you for uh, making it lower. Um, but oh, wait, how, so how are unemployment lower? You've, you, you recently, you've recently um, signed up with Tone. Oh, okay. I got to be obvious. I personally you, lowered that. You ju you've jumped over the line. So I'm a big believer that it will change jobs rather than destroy them. So when people talk about the fears of AI, there's two. First one is that we're all going to lose our jobs and there's going to be so much social unrest that uh, bad things are going to happen. And the second one is the, like the Skynet scenario where AI is essentially going to use its super intelligence and throw, push the gun against us and enslave us. Now, we yeah. haven't discussed that theory. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that that's his whole old can of worms and it's, you know, hot topic in the AI community. Yeah, I think... Mm -hmm. um, you know, the people who aren't worried about AI automation, they all, they always bring up the same anecdotes about like, oh, people worry like uh, what's going to happen to all the like, horse and buggy drivers, you know, and they, they found new jobs. Like there's, there will be creative destruction, creates new jobs. You know, I'm, I, I wouldn't say you can necessarily extrapolate that always. Like it's possible like there, there will reach a point like where a significant amount of jobs just uh, – will get automated. And the, the bigger problems, like you said, like maybe some of these workers could be upskilled to be running these like robotic arms in the factories. But like, I think I'm not exactly sure, but I do get a sense that right now, um, a lot of these, um, yeah, a lot of the new jobs being created are more technical and require more skill. And just not everyone can be upskilled, right? Like the whole idea, like sure. every truck driver can become a software engineer. It's just not going to happen. Um, so I think there is concern that like, um, it, it's possible at some point the trend will not hold that every creative destruction creates enough new jobs where people get employed. Um, and I think we should worry about it. I was just saying that I don't think that the large language model is the one that's going to cause it, nor is it anytime mm -hmm. soon. Um, yeah. What about, I mean, everyone loves to use the example, every, not every truck driver can be trained to become a software engineer. What about the saying, not every lawyer can be trained to become a plumber, which could be the main issue in the next like coming years. Yeah. I mean, um, because I, yeah, yeah. People going to law school. I think they are kind of stressed now because oh, you know, okay. the higher echelons are, it's a relationship building job. It's about networking, it's investment banking or consulting. Right. But the lower levels, yeah, you're doing a lot of grunt work that is automatable. So to your point, I think they could potentially need smaller classes because you need, you have less associates who can still put out the deliverables. Right. And then you can still yep. give them a chance to move up to partner. Um, but uh, to them, yeah, not everyone, yeah, 
there are definitely issues where in this country, I think there should be more focus on vocational training and uh, not just like creating more schools, but a bigger part of it is the societal perception and reducing yeah. the stigma of not being a professional, reducing the stigma of not going to a four-year college, which I definitely do not think everyone should go to, nor do I think it's like a human right. Like universities traditionally were the domain of like, you know, the landed gentry and the aristocracy who could afford to go yeah. think about theoretical questions just push the boundaries of human knowledge. And now we democratize access. We now see universities as engines of social mobility, which has changed your character and caused university curriculums to get dumbed down yeah. and, you know, become more vocational schools. But so we kind of lose on both both sides here. Like the universities get dumbed down and then, you know, people also are wasting a lot of money uh, mm -hmm. getting into debt to go to the, you know, maybe go to Ohio State, study history. Um, I, I think it's more right of a broad perception that like, yeah, become a frat bro. I, I think like people have to respect being like a technician where you can make a six figure job. You can, you can, you can raise a family, but I, I think yeah. it's more, you know, people get paid and people get a few things out of a job. You know, you get, uh, you get money, of course. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you, um, you get purpose if your company has like a mission. That's another one. Uh, but I think the third one is like respect. And the mission plays into that. But respect for yourself, respect for your peers. And I think that's yeah. one of the biggest things that's lacking with these like, you know, te technician jobs kind of thing, vocational school jobs. It's just like, yeah, it's not respected by society. And so, yeah, it's going to be hard to get a, like a Yale Law School grad to like want to go do that thing. Interesting. I mean, one thing uh, I often think about in the um, economy is that the unemployment rate is very low. But anytime you discuss the unemployment rate, there is a second number that always needs to be brought up, which is labor force participation rates. That's been dropping for a long time and really bottomed out um, during COVID and hasn't bounced back. And I was wondering if uh, you had any comment on that, because I know that uh, is it the life flat movement in China? Yeah, like, um, is it a movement? I would say it's not organized movement, but yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's... It, uh, but it, but it, I know, yeah, Life yeah. Flat, like, it's actually, it comes in a long line of these, like, slang terms are used to describe the hopelessness and the nihilism, the angst that youth in China face. Yeah. This is not the first one. Basically, in the last, like, maybe five years, every year there was one. There was um, Sanwenhua, which is kind of just, like, depression culture. And then there was, like... Um, uh, which is to lie flat, which is also just to kind of give up in light. Yeah. I think so. There's also like Bailan, which is similar idea. And then there, there was a word called Neijuan, uh, which means involution, which is an anthropological term used to describe the uh, zero sum, ridiculous level of cutthroat competition in these societies where the pie is not growing bigger. So people are just competing with each other for like bullshit gains because, you know, like um, to, to win, the only way is to like step on someone else. So I, I think China has been facing this for five years. But yeah, the, I think um, uh, the, the live flat culture is, yeah, I guess when you talk about labor force participation, right, I think you're mostly looking at U.S. statistics. And I don't know exactly in China what it is, but I think I can definitely tell you that in terms of the uh, the perception on the ground, like the the the, the psyche of society, it's it's very worried right now. It's very stressed. Um, you know, the I think the Chinese government uh, understands that. You know, since 1979, when we had reform and opening, um, and this was right after the Cultural Revolution, right? So we got rid of our uh, ancient traditions and the ancient yeah. sources of purpose and morality. We got rid of like yeah. a lot of ancient ideals. Okay, so what do you give people uh, to fill their spiritual void? You get you promise them material progress. You promise them social yes. economic mobility, and the government delivered. China has lifted the most people out of poverty. It's seen like yeah. you know, 
a crazy double-digit growth, like unprecedented run in human history. But now things are slowing down. Yeah. And you start seeing like my generation, even the generation a bit older than me, they're not seeing the socioeconomic ability my parents' generation saw because my parents' generation came out of like a shithole third world country, right? So obviously these also dirt, dirt floors and starvation. I mean, anyone who's seen those pictures of like Shanghai from like 1990 to 2010. Yeah, like people, it's, people like time, it's time travel. Yeah. People in America who are like thinking of China as a superpower and pure competitor now, which, you know, maybe there's a reason for that. They, they forget that like literally when China started reform and opening, like China was poorer than most African nations. It was poorer than like Venezuela, poorer than India, you know, and like uh, where it came from. So but then now obviously government can't promise that for, for the young people anymore. And the young people are realizing like, you know, uh, even before the tech crackdowns, even before COVID, like things were already starting to show signs that were slowing down. And um, a lot of the, like, I think China also um, had a few tailwinds they were using maybe, um, you know, in terms of like low cost labor, that's also getting used up a bit. And like, you know, uh, I think there was a lot they could do on business model innovation. Like there was less like fundamental basic research innovation China was doing, but they were able to take a lot of Western business models, innovate upon them, localize them, get a lot of economic gains. But now we're reaching a point where like even in America, you can't just make a social media app like Snapchat or like a pure software play and expect it to like go as big as it used to be. You need probably some more deep tech and China's just behind in terms of basic research and you know some of those tailwinds are gone obviously there's demographic time bomb so yeah there's definitely a lot of societal stress about um what's going to happen to the country and obviously on top of that you have political worry which you know i can't go too much into but you know people are a little unsure of what's what's going to happen it doesn't seem to be the same trajectory politically we've been on since since 1979 the the t word uh Taiwan. i don't know uh um there's Any a lot of you know, there's a lot of words that I'm not going to go into on the record. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. We'll talk. We'll talk about that um, in quiet then sometime. Um, what was I going to say? We're sort of the. What was that? Was what have I got? I've got this large language on Taiwan rapid round. Um, <laughs> here we go. Let's um, let's go into the uh, rapid round. How do you feel about that? Unless there's anything that you would like to discuss on, uh, on we can go into wraparound as long as you keep in mind probably the sets of topics I'm not allowed to talk about. Of course. Yeah. Um oh, okay, so I gotta talk knock a few ones. Um tell me if you can answer this one. What is something most people don't understand about China? Uh that's that's hard. And I, I appreciate this question. And and um I think about it a lot because um I look at like the Western coverage of China right now, right? And like yeah. I think, you know, some of it is justified. Like China is not a perfect country and you know, I don't I don't agree with you know everything my government does, but I think a lot of the Western content I see is actually rooted in falsehoods, is just factually untrue and leads to a lot of hyperbolic statements. In terms of the yeah. type of content they covered, it basically falls into a few narratives of like big China, evil China, weird China, bad China, right? And there's a lot yeah. of like the human side that's being lost here. Like I think, it, which is worrisome, right? As we seem to get into like um, more geopolitical tension, and a lot of people in America are viewing China as their enemy. They're forgetting these are humans on the ground on their side that have the same aspirations. They have weird kinks, you know, they want to make money. They have the similar sorrows and a lot of the, the human side of things yeah. lost. And, and there's some of the fault is the Chinese's where, so I know some like forest correspondents in China, right? Some of them are ethnically Chinese foreign correspondents who really yeah. want to help tell the Chinese story better, but the Chinese government and the Chinese society isn't necessarily helping their job. Like they're kind of like, yeah. 
self-censoring to a certain extent. So, so then these you know Chinese people abroad who want to help China improve their image, or at least provide a more nuanced view, they're like complaining that like yeah. you know you're, you're not helping your own your own cause here in a lot of ways. Where yeah. if you only let like the the American journalists sitting in New York and Washington talk, look at you from a distance and talk about you, yeah. of course they're going to skew it. But you're not telling your own stories, um, and um, so. It's also worrisome that I think the people in the West who are working on China issues now are often don't understand China very well. It's changed from um, there used to be a generation of what we call China hands, right? These were kind of like the China experts who advised a lot of the U.S. government on policy. They were in World War II. They were um, in, in Korea. They were even until I think the 80s. There were a lot of them. A lot of these people were actually, um, you know, like white Americans who were born and raised in China, sometimes from missionary mm. families, some maybe from diplomatic families. But these were people who were like born and raised in China, spoke Chinese as a first language. Yeah. Obviously, their loyalty was to America, but they really knew China on like a deep personal, historical, and cultural level. And they yeah. were the ones who managed a lot of the relationships with, the, with Chiang Kai-shek, with Mao Zedong, with the communists. And America's kind of lost that level of uh, expertise. I mean, there's some people who still maybe have some of that, like Matt Pottinger, you know, he's very caucus, but he seems to know China relatively well. But you see in the Trump administration bringing people like, uh, you know, Peter Navarro or Michael Pillsbury, like people who like are like uh, Michael Pillsbury was just like this really fringe thinker who like his whole shtick was like he read some Chinese characters. So he had this access to esoteric knowledge that the CIA didn't. And he wrote a whole book about it. But it's very worrisome when these are the kind of people who are in charge of this policy, when they're not understanding like so much nuance from, you know, one of the most complex countries and uh, on Earth, where China is also not a monolith. It's 1.4 billion people. It's 4x the US. And um, it has a lot of different factional allegiances, a lot of different loyalties, a lot of different incentive structures, and very complex history between the different areas and different groups within the country, where I think is um, this nuance is going to get lost, and it's going to be a, a strategic um, mistake on the West part to manage relationships. I, I think just like uh, if I were to summarize this, the rambling is more of like there is a human side, I think, that's lost about the people there, which is, you know, as we decrease the people to people interaction from like study abroad programs and like these travel programs that we used to have between the countries, it's going to exacerbate. Um, and the other one is that the people making a lot of policy decisions in the West are not the China experts. They are experts in other fields who have pivoted because it's a career making move. Like I, I've seen a lot of that. You know, there's like no one cares about the Middle East as much anymore. So like I'm going to pivot to China and make a name for myself. Very true. Um, a side question of that. Do you have an opinion on Aileen Gu? Um, I guess like I have a girlfriend now, so I shouldn't be saying this, but uh, she's really hot. Everyone knows that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> she, uh, she was like, you know, the Chinese internet, I think, is more homogenous than the Western internet in a lot of ways. Like um, in Chinese, you have this phrase, shopping, which means like it's like, uh, covering, plastering my social media, yeah. plastering my screens, right? And this is used to describe any phenomenon in China where like the whole country's talking about it once, right? And like, you know, we're in this like more accelerated world where it's like most people only get up to like 15 minutes of fame. And I think that was the case for a lot of phenomena in China. But I think yeah. was this phenomenon that was just like, just like controlling the country's psyche, I think for like weeks where all everyone in China could talk yeah. about and there was many different takes on her. Some of them was criticism of like, oh, where is she actually a citizen of? You know, is she like loyal to which country? Some people were saying like, uh, uh, there was a lot of like uh, articles like how to raise your kids to be like Eileen Gu. Like parents are <laughs> so behind. Like how could my, my kids ever possibly be like Eileen Gu? Or kids stressing yeah. about, holy shit, my, my mom's like shitting on me because I'm not nearly as like successful Eileen Gu, that kind of thing. So uh, she was like a huge phenomenon. Um, 
I think she's awesome. Uh, don't know her yeah. first. As you ask my Stanford friends who are going to school with her right now. Um, but yeah, that's quick thoughts about her. Yeah. How good. Um, is there a word in Chinese that doesn't have a English equivalent that you really like and think we could do better to have? Mm, yeah, I mean, this this is common in a lot of languages. I actually, freshman year, yep. I taught this like little one day course for some local high schoolers about words that cannot be translated. And yep. um, there's a few that were that came up, um, like in uh, Portuguese, especially in Brazilian Portuguese, is a word called uh, saudade, which is often translated as some kind of like missing someone or longing, but like the Brazilians are like, English doesn't capture it. In German, you have schadenfreude, where we just use the yep. German word, right? French, you have l'esprit d'escalier, which is like, it's called the spirit. It means the spirit of the stairs. It's when, uh, when you're like home, you're about you step on your steps as you're about to enter your house, and you realize, oh fuck, that's when you came up with this witty comeback that it's too late to use. You know that feeling. And the no. French phrase because the French are always too late to the witty comeback. And um, I think Chinese, I I think there's a probably a lot of them. Um, I I don't think I'm always thinking about them from the top of my head now. Um, I think one of them. I don't think this is the best example, but one of them. Uh, oh, actually, uh, one of them is called Tianxia. Tianxia literally means under have, under the heavens or under the sky, right? In in, in Chinese culture, you hear uh, um, this term that's often translated "heaven" in the West, which often mm. either means um, fate, the universe, destiny, God, deity. It's used in all these ways, right? But under the heavens is kind of like this. All it's kind of like a very traditional Chinese conception of the universe. And mm. um, I think it's never had a proper translation in the West. Um, and because I think it's like not, it's Tianxia not just in a very materialist physical context, but it's also especially about like the people and the culture, just all, all, all people, mostly referring to Chinese people. And what's interesting is like, you know, effective altruism, which is if there was a state religion of Silicon Valley, yeah. it would probably be effective altruism. There is this effective altruism organization in China founded by this guy called Brian Tse, who's like, I think, one of the first kind of influential effective altruists in China. He was, he's a Hong Kong person. And he founded this organization called Tianxia, which has a Tianxia Fellowship. And I think that kudos to him to actually having the Chinese cultural context to find this word. But I think this his idea of like, um, you know them on the effective altruist mission to benefit all people and all humanity. So I think Tianxia is one of those words. Nice. Uh, what are three things that you and your partner have in common? My partner, you mean my girlfriend? Yeah, your girlfriend. Um, th so this this is like a very like Alien Goo. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. This is a very new relationship in my life, so I don't know if I can like necessarily answer that well get yeah, to well, three we to get yeah. to know each other um but i think like i think she's curious i think intellectual curiosity is like one of the most important things i value just like i always had a fear of like maybe you get married for like a decade you wake up in the morning for breakfast you have nothing to talk about yeah. because you learn everything about each other and you don't keep learning i think i think that's one i think two is like kind of like a hustle um you know like yeah. I kind of keep myself busy, always engaging in different projects, learning about different things. That I think she kind of is too. Like she's she works very hard. A lot of these things, um, and I think um, uh, third, this kind of trivial, but um, you know, we went to college together, so we both have this love for our alma, alma mater. Yeah, nice. Yeah. You're into that Yale thing. I'm really into that Yale thing. Lots of lots of cocaine. Um, and <laughs> we can skip cut that out. Uh, we got a few last ones. Uh, were you, did you have tiger parents? I actually didn't. Um, oh, interesting. A couple of thoughts about that one. 
Um, I would say my parents were more lax than the Chinese parent norm, but I, this is anecdotal. So, you know, maybe the audience will flame me for it, but I think the tiger parent phenomenon is much more prevalent in uh, the Asian American community than it is back in Asia now. Uh, like the immigrant community, right? Yeah. Immigrants have a chip on their shoulder. They got a lot more to prove, I think. They're, I think, a lot more harder on their kids to try to like succeed in life. Uh, whereas in China, I think, obviously, there's depends on your socioeconomic stratum, um, you know, but like, among the parents I knew, I don't think they were actually nearly as hardcore as the Chinese American parents. Like I, I grew up in China, right? I think it's it's more of an immigrant mindset thing. Uh, and my parents, yeah, they were extremely chill. They like basically didn't give a shit about what I did. Gave me full freedom. Didn't really know where I applied to college, what I wrote my essays, what my grades were. I mean, because I did well, they just trusted me. And they in high school, I was seventeen when I went to Israel alone for a summer. They didn't know where I went, didn't know exactly what I was doing. But I think that was pretty crazy. Like most of their Chinese parent peers were like, "That's horrifying. You're sending your." son to the middle east alone like they think of the middle east as like syria afghanistan you know in like you know the battle for fallujah and you know they don't really know the nuances but they were like so my parents just let me go so i would say they were not tiger parents interesting it's interesting because everything you hear about like the gal cow and all that is it's you very much put through put you, through you, the ring you have yeah. a lot of that and that's why i was like you know i, I don't want to speak for all of china china is a diverse country i I can only speak for my media circle, my socioeconomic stratum, which is very unrepresentative of like most of China. Um, but um, also a lot of that stress, you know, I'm sure a lot of it comes from parents, uh, but a lot of it also is from the kids themselves, you know? Yeah. In, nice. in the Two last questions. I noticed on your um, LinkedIn that you uh, had a, you enjoy singing. I do. Do you have a favorite song to listen to? And do you have a favorite song to sing? Oh, favorite song to listen to is interesting. I mean, this changes a lot. I I, I like yeah, all the songs. Like, um, I I did acapella in college. I wasn't a very good singer. I was a beatboxer. Uh, so after college, yes. I did take some voice lessons. I was trying to get better at singing. I, I still wouldn't say I'm very good. But I think my teacher did bring up that compared to nearly all the students who signed up for voice lessons, I brought the biggest range of uh, music. So I did Elvis to Disney music uh, to Disney to like. Uh, classical musicals to country to heavy metal to Taylor Swift at Sheeran. So I, I I like to sing all kinds of things. Um, listening, yeah, it all really depends. I think um, there's a lot of things I like. Like I think one niche thing that I'm really into and I uh, is like uh, Mongolian heavy metal. And uh, there's specifically a band called The Who, who has an H U. Uh, they're so fucking sick. Uh, they were at Coachella. I saw them. They came to San Francisco. I saw them, and they were like. Uh, it should not be surprising that the Mongols, uh, given their bloodline and heritage, are perfectly suited for heavy metal music. I mean, they don't ride horses anymore. Now they ride like chopper bikes. But, you know, it's it's the same vibes. And when you listen to this music, which I recommend listeners go listen to like Wolf Toldum or uh, Sugan Isana, um, you just feel your blood boiling. You feel like you want to go pillage a Yuan Dynasty Chinese village, you know? Yeah. Nice. Final question. When you have to do something that you don't want to do, wake up early, go to the gym, do some tasks. What are some of the things that you tell yourself to motivate yourself to do it? Mm, good question. I, I, I've, I've struggled with procrastination a lot in my life. Like in yeah. college, it was so bad. Like, you know, everyone talks about the procrastinate, but I think it was, it was going to become like a medical condition for me. I went to see like mental health counseling. Like I went to see a bunch of like support because I was just like, I could sit in front of this blank word document until like 6 a.m. just not being a start. Yeah. And um, I, had, I would go to the library uh, to ostensibly study, but I would just be shooting the shit with my friends. And my friends would be like, they love studying with me because no matter how little work they got done, they always felt productive next to me. Yeah. So, I mean, it's been an issue. And I think over time, it's gotten better in the sense that 
I, I try to work on things that I'm personally interested in and more motivated in, which is naturally gives me motivation. I think yeah. too, it's like I do well with deadlines. Like I procrastinate, but I always deliver on deadlines. So like I work well when like shit's about to hit the fan. Um, yeah. uh, another mental, uh, and I think a mental exercise I helped was like, the shitty first draft concept is like always put out a shitty first draft. And I specifically yeah. use the word, the word shitty has to be in there because you have to tell yourself the first draft is supposed to be shitty. Like don't try to perfect it. Just get some, get some bullshit out there and refine it. Yeah. Um, I think it helps. And, and finally, maybe the thing that helps is like listening to enough, like Joe Rogan, David Goggins, Jocko Willink, that kind of like mindset, just like yeah. yourself, stop being a bitch, stop being a bitch. You know, that, that kind of thing yeah. also kind of helps you get out of bed, you know? Yeah. Brian Lowe, you've been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Harry. This was a lot of fun. And um, good luck with the rest of the podcast series. And we'd love to come back on again sometime. We'd love that as well.